You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. I love the line from the song. There is a chasm between us, but he had us in his sights. I think that sets up perfectly Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Father, we, we don't just sing those words, thank you for the blood applied. We mean that. We really, really are grateful. That we were lost and dead, living in darkness. But through your kindness and grace, you had us in your sights from the beginning of time. And as we walk through the genealogy of Jesus, it just reminds us of that truth. That Jesus was always a part of the plan to redeem us and to save us and to rescue us. And so we say thank you. And today we come to this genealogy of Jesus with grateful hearts for what you have done for us. And for the person sitting in this room or listening online that can't say thank you because they've never experienced your saving grace. I pray that today you would save them from their sin, save them from the darkness, save them from death and bring them to life through Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. On the last Monday of May each year in the United States, we have what we refer to as Memorial Day or was originally known as Decoration Day where you go and remember the lives of men and women who have given their lives for our country. And the idea behind Memorial Day is that you go to their, uh, the cemetery or the gravesite and you put an American flag or you decorate their uh, gravestone. And um, if you drive by a cemetery on Memorial Day, you'll see American flags lining it. Well, growing up, I remember that a few times in my years of growing up at home, that we, would, we lived in Topeka, Kansas, that we would jump in the car on Memorial Day and we threw a paper route so we could never stay overnight anywhere because we always had to be back to throw the paper route at two o'clock in the morning. And so anytime we went, it was we would leave after the paper route about five o'clock in the morning and we would drive to Kirksville, Missouri, where my grandma lived, which is about four or five hours from Topeka. We'd pick up my grandma in Kirksville, Missouri, and then we would drive around on Memorial Day and we would go to all the grave sites from my dad's side of the family. So we would go to my grandma, whose name was Mooney. Isn't that a great name? M-O-O-N-I-E. Like that's a perfect grandma name, Mooney. Um, we would go to her parents and grandparents' grave sites. And so we'd spend about half the day, four or five hours with my 
my grandma, my dad's dad passed away when my dad was in his 20s, so I never met my grandpa. But uh, so we'd go all these grave sites. And, you know, it was neat to watch my dad and my grandma talk about these different names, people that I had no idea who they were, never met them before. And this is like a second, third, fourth cousin kind of idea. And just to hear the stories of, of their life. Then we would drop my grandma back off at Kirksville and we would go to Greensburg, Missouri. And that's where my mom sort of grew up and some in Liberty, some in Greensburg, but a lot of her families uh, are, a lot of her family is buried in Greensburg. And so my, my mom's parents were gone by this time. And so we would go around and we'd see Ralph and I'm trying to remember, I can't, I just lost my grandma's name because it's just grandpa and grandma, you know, but my mom's dad's name was Ralph. I do remember that. And we'd go and see their grave sites and her sister's grave sites. And again, cousins and aunts, uncles, all that kind of thing. So for me, these names really, to be honest, didn't mean much, right? I'd see these names of people and they would talk about them. I knew it was my family heritage and we were farmers and we'd grown up in that area of Missouri, but you know, it wasn't that significant. We'd moved to Topeka, my dad worked for the railroad. Our lives had taken a different turn than the, the farming community. But to my grandma and my parents, these names had significant meaning. And in a way, this is what Matthew is doing for us in his genealogy of Jesus. Is what he's doing is he's taking a Jewish audience to the cemetery of all of these different people and he's showing them their gravestones and he's reminding his Jewish audience and, and really probably more defending Jesus' royalty and showing here's how this person relates to this person, relates to this person, which leads us to Jesus. So he's, he's showing them his family heritage and where Jesus comes from and mainly focusing on this idea of Jesus being from the royal line of David. Because remember, what is the theme of the book of Matthew? Do you remember from last week? Jesus is king, all right? It's all right, you can say it out loud. The theme of Matthew is what? Jesus is king. And so Matthew is gonna take his genealogy and help us see the point that Jesus is king of the Jews, that Jesus is the king of the Gentiles. He also shows us this through the key verses of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I want you to read these verses with me. Let's read them together, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." In this, we see the word all used three times. Remember, all authority, all nations, all teachings. All authority, all nations, all teachings. This is Jesus summarizing. This is 
Matthew summarizing his book through Jesus' words that all authority, all nations, all teaching, I am the king who has all authority over all nations and you should observe all my teachings because I am the king. So before we jump into the genealogies of Jesus, let's look again at verse one. And I mentioned this last week, so some of this will be review. But before we read through the genealogy of Jesus, let's set it up by looking at verse one of Matthew 1 together. Matthew 1, 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins his book this way, the book of genealogy. This word genealogy is the same word where we get the word Genesis from in the Old Testament. So if you remember, the first book of the Old Testament is the book of Genesis, and it is known as the book of beginnings. And so Matthew starts his gospel as we're transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Matthew is transitioning us through this phrase, the book of genealogies, the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is if you go back to Genesis chapter two and chapter five, you see this same terminology used. Look at Genesis chapter two and verse four. This is how Moses writes this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's the same word that he's using there, the book of the genealogy. Generations, genealogy is the same word. So this is how Moses chose to start the book of Genesis. This is the book of the generation, or these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then you go to Genesis chapter five and verse one, where he gives us the generations of Adam. He says this, this is the book of the generations of, of Adam. As we're beginning creation, right? He's giving us the beginning of creation. Now, as we're beginning this life with Jesus and this kingdom that will be ruled by Jesus, we begin at the beginning. So that's why he begins with the book of this genealogy, the book of genealogy, the book of beginnings of Jesus Christ. You'll remember from last week, Jesus Christ is not the first and last name of Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh. So that is his name. It's the same. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll see the term Joshua. Joshua is the same. It's the New Testament idea of Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. And we know that Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. We know that Christ is the title given to Jesus, right? So it's Jesus is his name. Christ is the title. Christ ties us into the Old Testament through the term Messiah. So when you see the term Messiah in the Old Testament and this fulfillment of the Messiah, that's referring to Jesus. Christ has the idea of anointed one or king. So this is the, the book of the beginnings of Jesus, Yahweh who saves Christ, this Messiah, the anointed one, the king. Then he says, the son of David. You remember from last week that this son of David is pointing us to the promise that God had made to David that through his line, his kingdom would be set up forever. 
And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, that he's fulfilling the promise that he made to David. It's also interesting to note that Matthew uses this term son of David 17 times in the book of Matthew. He uses it more than any other author in the New Testament. Why does he use it more than any other author? Because he's bringing us back to the theme, right? He's trying to show to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So he uses this son of David over and over again because he's reminding them Jesus is the promised Messiah that you've been looking for. But then he just doesn't say the son of David. He says also the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham takes us back to another prophecy that has been fulfilled. The the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and chapter 22 and verse 18, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so when he says, not only is Jesus king of the Jews through the line of David, but he is also king of the Gentiles or king of all nations through the line of of Abraham. And so this is how Matthew begins his book. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we go to the genealogy of Jesus. Before I jump into that and we read, through them all together. It's going to be a fun journey. We're going to read from verse 2 to verse 16 together. I want you to know this. The Greek verb that is translated was the father of. So we're going to say this a lot of times. In fact, we're going to say it 39 times, 40 times it's used, but 39 times we're going to say was the father of. This was the father of does not require immediate relationship but often means something like this, was the ancestor of, okay? So if you really dig down into these genealogies, what you find is there's a few people that are missing in the genealogy. So if you go back to 1 Chronicles and you read through the genealogy there and you read this genealogy, it's like, hey, there's a few names missing. It's, it's okay that Matthew removed those names. He's not doing them disservice because that wasn't the point necessarily to get everybody's name in there. The point is that he's wanting to see that they were the ancestor of. So it would say, be like saying that, that Ralph was the father of Stephen, right? Like I'm still, yes, related to Ralph, although that wasn't my dad. It's the idea Ralph was the ancestor of Stephen, if that makes sense. So let's read then through from chapter two to verse 16. So let me just lay it out here because we're, an open and honest church. Last night, I sat down with my family, right? Encouraged us to sit down as families and read the portion of scripture that we're gonna read together so we can prepare our hearts. So I sit down with my family to, last night to read through this together. And about halfway through, one of my sons, I won't mention his name, begins to laugh at me as I'm reading all of these names. So Zerubbabel was the one that really sort of got him and he just couldn't stop laughing. And then it was just downhill from there. So I want you to know, I have practiced these names. I have listened to these names. I've read them to my family. So if you laugh at me, I will not be offended, all right? It's just, 
I am who I am. I can't pronounce normal words at times. So how am I going to pronounce some of these names? So just bear with me. If it sounds off, I'm probably wrong. You're probably right. Um, and you, it's, it's okay to laugh at me. I'll just go cry in the fetal position in my office after, after the service. But it's fine. It's, it's really fine. It doesn't bother me at all. All right, let's read it. Verses 2 through verse 16. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Jeron, Jeron, Je, yep, there you go, Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, and at this time of the deportation to Babylon. And then after this in verse 12, I don't know what happens to the names, but they just go south really fast. It's like, I don't know what happened in the whole deportation thing, but it was like they lost sight of reality and choosing names because they get really tricky in these next four verses. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of sorry, Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad, and Abiad was the father of Elikam, and Elikam was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zodak, Zadak, and Zadak, Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Eliad, and Eliad was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Maton, and Maton was the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Amen. Yeah, we did it. So verse 17. So all the generations, I can pronounce these terms, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let me give you some just general observations about this genealogy today. There's a lot of names, obviously, 
And there's a lot of things that we could dig down into, but I'm gonna give you some general observations about the text, and then I hope to bring it home to you and help us see what Matthew's genealogy of Jesus shows us. The first thing that I want you to notice or an observation that I made in the study of this genealogy of Jesus is that in this genealogy, you find five names of women in the genealogy. Now for us today, that may not seem odd, but for the Jewish culture, you didn't typically put the names of women into your genealogy. The husband was the head of the home, the leader of the home. It was through his line. That was the idea. So it was always the father of, right? That statement that you you read, it was always the father of. So it's interesting that as Matthew is writing this gospel and as he is helping us understand the life of Jesus that is he would take us to these gravestones and point out these different names that he would point out the name of five different women L- let me introduce you to these five different women if you look at verse 3 you find the first woman her name is Tamar Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38 her uh father-in-law, Judah, did not fulfill his promise of giving his youngest son to Tamar. So she was married to some of his older sons and she would marry, they would die, she'd marry, they'd die. So it comes to his youngest son and uh, Judah's like, this is not a good idea to give the youngest son because if he marries Tamar, he's gonna die, right? There's been this pattern. And so he withholds his youngest son from Tamar. What Tamar does is Tamar goes down to the temple and the temple was the place where you would go to get a prostitute. And so Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and Judah comes down and gets himself a prostitute, not realizing that that's Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And so he sleeps with her and from sleeping with her, we get twins. We get the, it says in here, Perez and Zerah, come from Tamar. This is Tamar. Many scholars believe she was a Canaanite woman, meaning she was not of a Jewish descent. So she was a a Gentile. Then in verse five, we're introduced to the second lady, and that is a lady by the name of Rahab. Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter two. Rahab was also a prostitute and a Gentile. She comes into the story through two spies who Joshua had sent to make plans to take down Jericho. And so she sends, he sends these two spies. They figure out that they're with the children of Israel. And so they go to Rahab's house. Rahab hides them. Remember they come and they say they're not here and they, they leave and those spies go out through a window and, and leave and they're safe. And before they leave, They say to Rahab, when we come take over, we want you to know, hang a scarlet cord out of your window and we'll make sure to save you. So this is Rahab. So you got Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, is impregnated by her father-in-law. Now you have Rahab, who's a prostitute that saves the men who came in in who were spies. And then we come to the third lady, Ruth. Ruth's story is found in 
the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth is a Moabite woman, meaning again, that she's not of Jewish descent. She would be referred to as a Gentile. God uses her loyalty to her mother-in-law to make her a part of this royal line of Jesus. So we know the story of Ruth, that her husband's died and she stays with her mother-in-law and goes back to the land and God uses that to bring Jesus through her line. Then you find after David there, after the first 14, when we begin with David was the father of Solomon. In verse six, it says, by the wife of Uriah. Who is the wife of Uriah? The wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. This story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. We know the story that David stays home from battle. Uriah is Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's husband. He's gone out to war. Bathsheba's pretty. David's on the top of a roof. He looks down. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He invites Bathsheba to come to his house and they have sex together and get pregnant again and get pregnant. They have Solomon. David brings Uriah, her husband, back and says, hey, Go home to your wife. You've, you've worked really hard at war. He's such a loyal man to his men that he doesn't go into her. He sleeps outside the house. So David sends him back and basically murders him, puts him on the front line where he'll be murdered. And this is Bathsheba. And then the last lady that we find is in verse 16, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it's just interesting that Matthew would choose in the genealogy of Jesus to put these five women. I'll talk to you in a second about why I think this is significant, but he uses these five women's names in the genealogy. The second thing that I want you to notice is in verse six, that David is, Matthew, as he's going through the genealogies of Jesus says, and Jesse, the father of David, and then he adds the king. Now, why would Matthew do that? He doesn't do that with Solomon. He doesn't say, if you go down, David was the, Sol was the father of Solomon, the king, by wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the king, was the father of Rehoboam, the king. Why does he bring attention to David being the king? Well, it takes us back to who he is writing to and the theme that he is trying to get across. He's trying to let them know, the Jewish audience, that Jesus was through the royal line of David, the king. And so he's just wanting to remind. It's another hint at the theme for the book that Jesus is the king. Another thing to look at is verse 16. And it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It doesn't say, notice, Joseph, the father of Jesus. Why doesn't it say that? Because that was the pattern, right? It says, oh, I mean, over and over again. In fact, 40 times it says, Elad, Eliah, the father of Ilazar, right? Ilazar, the father of Matan. It just goes on, the father of the father of. And then we come to Jesus's name and it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Why doesn't it say, Joseph, the father of Jesus? 
Well, Matthew is showing us through the text that Mary is the only biological parent of Jesus. We see this particularly in a couple of phrases that we can't see in the English language, but if you read in the Greek or you study that, you, you will see them. The first is that phrase of whom. That phrase of whom is a relative pronoun in the feminine gender, which is pointing us to Mary, okay? So we can't see that in the text, but it, it could have said masculine, right? It could have been done, put in the masculine gender, but it was put in the feminine gender. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus, it is pointing us to Mary being Jesus's biological mom. But then he just doesn't start there by putting that in the feminine. He says, Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This was born is the passive voice of the term, the father of, right? So 40 times in Jesus' genealogy, it says the father of, the father of, the father of. 39 of those times, it's in the active voice meaning it happened, they, they did it, right? The father of, the father of, the father of. But only one time is it in the passive voice and in the passive voice, it's right here, was born. Here's what the passive voice means. The passive voice means the person receives the action or is acted upon. So, what do you think Matthew has in mind when he's writing it this way? We've used the active voice for 39 times. And on the 40th time, rather than using the active voice, the father of, he uses the passive voice in referring to Mary was born. Why does Matthew choose to write it in this way? It is like... He is trying to tell us that this is not a normal birth. And next week, we'll see what he's talking about, this idea of Mary receiving the action or being acted upon. We'll see what he's talking about next week in the next section of scripture that we look at. So again, what a neat thing that Matthew would choose, even in his grammar, to point us to things that are going on with Jesus that are supernatural. Then you'll notice in verse 17 that the genealogy of Jesus is broken down into three sections of 14. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon when they lost sight of names, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what's the significance of three 14 generations? Well, probably at a really high level, the importance of that was for memorization. That as they would remem remember the genealogy, they would have these 14, three sets of 14, right? We're good at memorizing things in that way. And so they didn't necessarily have text to write it down. So the way you remembered things was through memorization. 
And so this would be an easy way for that early church audience, those Jewish people, to remember the genealogy of Jesus and how he comes from the royal line of David and from Abraham as well. So at a high level, I believe that's probably the heart behind the three sets of 14. But there is an interesting other fact about this that as I was studying in different commentaries that I would read all brought this out. And that is this, if you take the name of David in the Hebrew, it is three letters. And I'm just going to use the English letters, D-W-D, all right? That, that's David's name in Hebrew is those three letters. And in ancient world, letters served not only as building blocks of words, but also as symbols for numbers. This was referred to as geometria. And this geometry is they would take these, word, these, these letters and they would add number values to them. So this was David's, okay, number value. D was the number four, or the letter, yeah, no, no, number four. W was the number six. And then D again was the number four. So to my math majors in the room, four plus six plus four equals what? Fourteen. So three sets of 14. Why would he do that? What is he doing? He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the royal line of David. And this is just another way to solidify to that Jewish audience that this is the real thing. This is not something made up. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah that you are looking, looking for. Just pretty neat how Matthew would write in this way that would have spoken to the hearts of the audience that was reading it. So these are just some observations that I wanted to point out to you from Jesus' genealogy. Now, let me bring it down a little bit, maybe to a 10,000 foot view for us. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus shows us a couple of things. First, it shows us the sovereign plan of God. Put it simply, when we say that God is sovereign, we are saying God is in absolute control of all things and he ordains everything according to the purpose of his will. So when we look at the line of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, it shows us that God has a sovereign plan for everything. The good and the bad, right? The Ruth and the Tamar. Like when you read Jesus's genealogy, you can't help but be moved by the fact that God is sovereign over all things. Let me remind you from some scripture to this end. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, as Joseph is looking back on his life being sold into slavery as they're about to leave uh, the land of Egypt. It says this, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As Joseph is surveying his life and he sees the evil that has happened to him, he says, now listen, God meant that evil for good to deliver a lot of people. 
And when we read the genealogy of Jesus and we see these people that were wicked and evil and made bad decisions, what we see is the same thing, that even through those people's lines, that there would become good and there would be salvation for all people. This is the sovereign plan of God working out before our eyes. In Job chapter 42, in verse two, Job puts it this way, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That there's no purpose of God that will ever be thwarted. His plan to redeem us, to save us from our sins through the person of Jesus Christ couldn't be thwarted by any situation. Because his purposes will always happen. That's the sovereign plan of God. Isaiah 45 and verse seven, God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He says, I'm, I'm sovereign over the good and the bad. I allow those things to happen because it's all according to the counsel of my will, the purposes of, and the plans of God to be fulfilled. I like how Paul puts it to the Galatians in Galatians chapter four and verse four. He says, but when the fullness of time had come at just the right time, he's saying, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What is he saying? God's sovereign plan was at work and at just the right time in Jesus' genealogy tree, Jesus came. Church, we must rest in the sovereign plan of God. We must trust him. We read through this genealogies and we think that's weird if you study some of these names that he would put them in his family tree, right? Couldn't he have done better than that? But he's using all these circumstances, all these different situations, he's using them all for the purpose, for the plan that he has designed. And I would encourage us, let's rest in the sovereignty of God. That no matter what's going on in your family tree, Right? That God is using all of those things, the good and the ugly. He's using it all for his glory and for our ultimate good. So first, I think we see from Jesus' genealogy, the sovereign plan of God at work. And then we see the wonderful grace of God. Think about who God chose to put into his family tree. I think if you just start right at the beginning with verse two, Abraham. Abraham was a liar. We're introduced to Abraham. He comes on the scene and they're moving, they're following God's leading and they're coming to kingdoms and other nations that would try to take them over. And Abraham's wife, Sarah is beautiful. And so he knows that. And he thinks if I go into this country, I go into this land, they're gonna see my beautiful wife. They're gonna kill me. And so I'm gonna say, you're my sister. All right, we're gonna work this together so they don't kill me. So he lies about his wife. 
That's, that's Abraham. Abraham has a baby with Hagar because Sarah couldn't get pregnant and didn't get pregnant till she was 90. And Abraham was 100, but they tried to take God's plan into their own hands and work it out for their good and to have a baby. And so he sleeps with Hagar and has a child through her. This is the first name of the first guy mentioned in Jesus' genealogy here. So we see the wonderful grace of God that he would take to choose to use a liar, a cheat, sleeping around on his wife, that he would still choose to use Abraham to be a part of the line of Jesus. You think about Jacob. Jacob is known in the Bible as a deceiver. Remember he deceives his father Isaac? He puts like skin on him because his brother Esau was hairy and he goes in and has his dad rub his arms that he he deceives him and takes the birthright that was rightfully Esau and and throughout his life he's known as a, a deceiver this is who God chooses to put into his family tree this shows us the wonderful grace of God you think about Judah and I mentioned it that he goes to the temple to get a prostitute first of all that's a problem right and then it's an even bigger problem that he sleeps with his daughter-in-law and doesn't realize it till the next day. He chooses to put a man like Judah into his family tree. He chooses to put a man like Jesse who, when Samuel says, hey, I'm gonna come and anoint one of your sons to be king, that he lines up his sons, but he leaves one of his sons out to tend sheep because he's like, there's no way that guy's a king. And Samuel goes through each one of the sons and that's not the one, that's not the one. Do you got any other sons? And he's like, oh yeah, I've got one. He's out keeping sheep, but you know, let's not bring him in, right? Who's that? David. So you have a father in there who didn't believe in his son, right? And thought his son wasn't equipped to be the king. And then you have David. David is an adulterer. He's a murderer. And we know from our study in Psalms, he's emotionally unstable, right? Like the dude was up and down all the time. And yet God, through his grace, chooses to use each one of these men to be a part of his story. And then I think about the women that he mentions. Again, this is what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't hold back. It doesn't take these people whose stories are maybe not the ideal stories and hide them, but puts them out there so that we can see the wonderful grace of God. So you look at the women that they put in there. First of all, women in the first century were considered second-class citizens. So why would Matthew choose to put these women in there? Because I believe he is pointing to a greater reality that Galatians chapter 4 or chapter 3 and verse 28 reminds us of. Where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Matthew is putting these women into the genealogy of Jesus as a way to say, it's a new day. We are all one in Christ. Three of these women had sketchy past. And yet God chooses to redeem their story and use their offspring to be a part of the line of Jesus. 
The first four women that were mentioned were more than likely Gentiles, which shows us God's grace is available to all nations, right? Matthew 28, 19, make disciples of all nations. And so by bringing in the names of these women who were not Jewish women is showing us that the gospel that Jesus is available for all nations. I believe this is what the genealogies of Jesus is showing us. The sovereign plan of God and the wonderful grace of God. So here's what I would say, bringing it all the way down to the floor. It is the sovereign plan of God that you are under my voice today. This is not luck. This is not chance. This is the sovereign plan of God that has you sitting in this room, that has you watching online, listening to this, this message. The genealogies of Jesus is not a woohoo, right, kind of message. But it is the sovereign plan of God that you would hear this. And then I believe it is the wonderful grace of God that is being presented to you today through the line of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to rescue you from your adultery. Jesus came to rescue you from your prostitution. Jesus came to rescue you from your lying. Jesus came to rescue you from your deceiving. Jesus, as the song said, looked across the chasm and had his eye on you. And the line of Jesus points us to this wonderful grace of God that is available to you. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by the grace of God, I just lost Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It just, for the, help me with it. For by grace, thank you. I missed the first word. For by grace, you are saved. Rescued from what? Adultery, murder, right? All your sin, all that that has separated you from God. For by grace, you are saved through faith, through trusting in Jesus and not of your own. You can't work across the chasm. You can't get across it. Only through Jesus and only through his blood can you cross that chasm that is between you and the grace of God is available to you. And I would say, please respond to that grace today. Don't reject his grace, but say yes to Jesus today and know what it means to be a part of the family of God. And yeah, we still got our stories. We still have our past, but we've been redeemed. And when people, we talk about our past, we talk about the wonderful grace of God. Father, thank you for the genealogy of Jesus and that we could see your hand, your sovereign plan working all of these names and all of these stories together that would lead us to the promised Messiah who would come, the king who would come and rescue us from our sin and put us in right relationship with you. And I pray today that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice, whether in this room or online, that's never experienced the wonderful grace of God, that today they would experience that grace by putting their faith and trust in you. And for those of us who have, help us to rest in your sovereign plan, 
that even when we look at our life and it seems like it's falling apart and things aren't going as planned, that you're working everything together for your glory and for our good. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to enjoy the wonderful grace of God. The farther we move away from the past, sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, we forget how good your grace is. So I pray this week that you would remind us of how wonderful the grace of God truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's Antioch bbc.org God's best to you